Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. morning. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to John chapter 21. This morning we're going to be reading and then hearing together from John 21 verses 15 to the end of this gospel. So John 21 beginning in verse 15. John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. Because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old... You will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper, and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony 
is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, even just in the reading of it. We pray for such benefit as comes from heaven above. As has already been prayed, we pray again that You would give the Holy Spirit to influence, impact each one of our hearts in keeping with Your Word. And may Christ, our risen Lord and Savior, may you have all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. So we've come to the end of this great gospel and book of the Bible. And as we have, it's taken us back to the beginning. The final words really focus on the first words. Jesus to His people, you follow me. You follow me. Maybe we thought it'd be more than what it is. Maybe we thought it'd be something more profound, something more advanced. Or maybe this right here, you follow me. Maybe this is that. The thing that's more profound, the thing that's really advanced. These men have been through the seminary of Jesus Christ and exceeded seminary. They've done ministry with Jesus Christ. They've seen His signs. They've seen His perfections. They've felt His Word as the flame of eternal life in their own souls. They've preached His truth. They've gone about and witnessed His power. They've seen Jesus. Obedient, tried, crucified, dead, buried, raised, and present with them. And after all that, what's the great call upon their lives? Same as it's always been. You follow me. There is no greater call than that call. Boiled down, it gives the sum and the substance of Christianity from the first and charges us to hold it steady to the last. The question this morning is, do we do that? As the days go by, how many things intersect with that call, you follow me, intersect with that call, and then intercept it. If this call is the tuning fork that harmonizes our lives with Jesus, what do we allow to make us off-key from day to day? Is it the slumping effect of accumulated failures, maybe like Peter knew? Is it the forgetfulness of gospel amnesia? Forget the grace of Christ towards us. Is it this hyper-preoccupation with what we might call the fate of other people? Is it the fear of what boldness for Jesus will bring into our lives? Or is it a simple carelessness with the words of Jesus? Is it a comfortable, me-centered life that's lived with no mind to the glory of Christ? Because whatever it is, 
whatever it is, you follow me addresses it. Being here at the end, it tells us, keep returning to first things. However demoralized, however distracted, however devoted, however developed in the Christian life, Christian faith, day in and day out, the way forward, in some part, always involves going back. It's applying what Jesus never intended us to forget or outgrow. And again, that's just Christian, 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 you follow me. And to understand that better, let's come to this final text where our first heading is following Jesus and Christian restoration. It's a moving and needed notion that once more, as with Thomas before, so also Peter now, John would round out his gospel with the restorative care of the risen Jesus. So, verse 15, when they, this group of disciples, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus singles out Peter for a walk and a talk. And is there any mystery, really, as to why? Peter was continuing with Jesus. He was continuing with Jesus, only with a deep wound, apparently, in his soul. He was walking with him, but with a spiritual limp, we might say. Peter had been quick to the empty tomb. You'll remember that. He stayed inclined to hope in Christ. He'd assembled with the disciples. Remember, Thomas did not do that on that first Easter day, right? So Peter assembled with the disciples that day. He'd later then borne witness to Thomas that he had seen the risen Jesus. He'd carried on as a leader of the disciples and was the first and only one, you remember from a week ago, to then fling himself into the sea because of his fervent love for Jesus. So, there were more than a few things that commended Peter even after his denials of Jesus. Which is to say, and we need to understand this, that a person may appear spiritually vibrant to us, as I'm sure Peter did to the other disciples, and yet that same person, at the same time, be crushed in spirit. They themselves may not be aware of it, but with perfect incisiveness and precision, Jesus does. Jesus is aware of it. And it's all his heart to heal us up. Now, one other thing before drilling down right there, I want you to see what kind of wound this is. We hear it all the time how a person is wounded, how they're hurt, and the hurt is almost always described, in my experience, is almost always described in terms of being sinned against by another person. They have hurt me. Their words have hurt me. That church has hurt me. They've done wrongly by me, and it's hurt me. And that's all very possible. But what I hardly ever hear in anyone's appraisal of their hurt, their wounds, is what Paul gets at in Romans chapter 7. I am my own worst enemy. For every one time I'm hurt by another, I injure myself a thousand times over. 
the soul-hurting sinner in me goes with me wherever I go. It was Charles Spurgeon who once spoke to this effect that if someone thinks ill of you, that's no cause for thinking ill of them, but of confirming the fact that you're far worse than they think you to be and to invite their prayers that you know Jesus more and better than you do. I say all this, why? Because who's responsible for Peter's spiritual limp? Who's responsible for it? Isn't it Peter? It's not John. It's not Thomas. It's not James or Matthew. It's not Jesus. It's just Peter. Peter is why Peter is as he is. Does that make sense? Now, here's the thing then. Peter is not able to heal himself. He's not Wolverine, right? He's not spiritually self-restoring, and neither are we. So just like Peter, each one of us, we need Jesus from day to day to do the kind of work we see in this passage. We need this great physician of our souls. So this is more like a doctor's visit. This walk and talk with Jesus is more like a doctor's visit. It's surgery via the risen Savior. And what we see is that restoration can be a painfully heart-searching process to match each one of his denials. Jesus asked Peter three times about his love for Jesus. He isolates the wound to open it up again. And the first incision if you will, seems to aim at a comparison that Peter had made earlier in the gospel. How if all these other disciples deny you, Jesus, I never will. He thought his love for Jesus was greater than his brother's love for Jesus. He thought his love for Jesus was greater than it really was. And Jesus wants Peter to feel this so that he would be careful moving forward that he doesn't think more highly of himself than he ought. And so you'll notice in the passage, Peter says nothing about the other disciples here. Do you love me more than them? Peter doesn't say anything about them. He drops the comparison and just affirms, I love you as you know. And then we come to a second incision, verse 16. And in this second incision, Jesus also drops the comparison and seems to focus further, as does the third incision, on this matter of love, like this. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Do you really love me, Peter? Now, isn't that the great test? Not the only test, but the great test. Not so much a doctrinal test as a heart exam. A heart exam. Which, to be clear, I don't think makes it any easier. Okay? In fact, in some ways, a heart exam can be harder. We may find it easier, for instance, to talk about what Jesus did on the cross than what Jesus thereby has done for us is doing in us 
and what it all means to us about Jesus, our heart, our love for Jesus. For some, easier to talk atonement of Christ than it is to talk about our affections for Christ. At the same time, however, what should be easier for a true Christian to confess always than, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. A Christian may not be able to articulate the ins and outs of the hypostatic union or verbally plumb the depths of Christ crucified. Even angels are mystified by that. But the newest babe in Christ, as well as the nearest to Christ's saints I know, can and will answer this question, do you love me readily enough? Yes, Lord, you know I do, I do, I do love you. Now, if you look at verse 17, you'll see that the Lord's third incision cuts Peter to the quick. By it, he brought Peter to grief, is what it says. You ever thought about Jesus bringing you to grief? He brought him to grief. I think it's here this third time that the lights come on for Peter, and they need to come on for us. I guess, I would guess, we should be more grieved, like Peter is grieved here more often than we actually are. Peter has just realized Jesus knows the lack in my love for him. He hears our vows, but he knows our hearts. He hears our promises of love to him, but he knows our failures to keep said promises. Jesus knows our faults. He knows our defaults, apparently all the way down to the exact number of them. Jesus knows the boundaries that we set up. This far, I will love you, Jesus, but no farther, and please don't press me on it. Jesus knows us as we really are. He knows the condition of our love for Him in truth. Not just when the weather is all fine about our lives, but when it is exposed by the elements of persecution. We need to understand that love to Christ assumes death to self. And Jesus knows just how much of us still lives for us. So Peter comes to a most humbling but healing place, I think, in verse 17. He says, Lord, it's a little different here, Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. (laughs) In other words, I'm not the doctor. I'm not the judge of my love for you. I know I love you. I know I love you, but there's no denying my denials of you. You're the Lord Please help the love I have and make it more. Have you arrived there? Have you arrived there? When did you last go on a walk with Jesus after breakfast and let Him get you there? Peter's limp could only be strengthened by knowing Jesus knows 
And yet, though in our minds we think that'll push him away, and yet, he's still here with me, pursuing my heart, fortifying my love, communicating his own unchanging love and purpose for me. Oftentimes we try to dress our wounds ourselves, try to act like they're not there, maybe try to cover it up with our Christianity. But as we do, we really only aggravate the wound, the hurt, the pain further. The way to heal it is to have Christ and Christ alone address it, to isolate it, to open it up, to air it out, and then to apply His grace to us. I know you. That's not good news. Really. I know you, Peter. And in spite of that, here I am. Still. I do know you love me, Peter. But Peter, do you know how much I love you? Now, I haven't dealt with the Lord's recommissioning of Peter, which he also does three times as part of this restorative process, but that was really just to bring us into this next point. Following Jesus and Christian dying. We tend to focus a lot on Christian living. And not at all on the fact that there is such a thing as Christian dying. And so, with that in mind, Christian dying, let me just give a minute to Christian ministry. On this walk, in the affirmations of love and grace, Jesus says to Peter, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. So he's not just restoring Peter to himself, but to leadership in what will be the early church. And what we ought to first notice is that in doing that, he's not transferring his ownership to Peter. He's restoring him to leadership, but he's not transferring his ownership to Peter or anybody else. These are my lambs. We are His sheep. Jesus is the chief shepherd who, so to speak, is our senior pastor. Really, Jesus. But see then, He does employ others in the noble task. Starting with the apostles. And first of all, Peter. Who then passes it along to next gen, subsequent generations of pastors and the churches that they aim to shepherd under Jesus. And what under Jesus is their main charge? In general, is to tend Christ's flock. It's to be about the things that Jesus is about the way that Jesus is about them. Or you could go to Ezekiel chapter 34. That's a great place to go if you're wanting to learn a little bit about pastoral shepherding, strengthening the weak, healing the sick, Binding up the injured, bringing back the straying, seeking the lost, identifying the real sheep, protecting the flock, giving up our lives for the eternal good of your souls. But now there is something that dominates Ezekiel 34 and gets two mentions here by Jesus. And what is that? What is Peter's main charge? What is our main charge how do we best tend this flock of Christ? By feeding it. Yeah, 
by feeding it on the truth and grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I think Jesus has tied together love for Him and pastoring His people. Whether we do this well, whether we feed you well, says a lot about George's love for you. And mine too. Okay? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. See that? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. It's not the only test, but a pastorate and pulpit that seems to care less or be careless about giving you rich pasture reveals a poor love for Jesus. How you should pray. If you're going to pray anything for your pastors, how you should pray for our love for Christ. That'll only be to your benefit. Ever. But I would also pose the question to the congregation. Do we love Christ? Because if we do, if we do, we won't be satisfied by anything less than richest fare from the whole counsel of Christ. We'll grow to be like that old flock to the good but lengthy preacher which y'all know nothing about. Just kidding, you do. Okay? He preached for like two hours or something. At the end of two hours, he apologizes to the people and the people say, for the love of God, man, keep going. Feed on, shepherd. We're starved. When you love Christ as you ought, you will demand to be well-fed sheep. Give us the Word. Give us the whole counsel. Give us Christ undiluted. Make us plump with truth, rich in grace, stuffed with God, brimming with wisdom, equipped for battle, overflowing with life. Whatever you do, feed us. If you want some sermon outlines from Peter, how he applied that, you have his letters, and you have Acts chapter 2. But what we need to see now is what Jesus tells him next in verses 18 and 19. Jesus tells Peter, Peter, you will not engage in that kind of ministry without dying for it. There is a cost to faithfully shepherding the flock of Christ in this world, and it is the cross. Now, Jesus does not specify the cross for Peter. He just says in Peter's latter days, after he served Christ so well in life, he'll be bound and taken against his will to serve Christ well in some kind of death where his arms are going to be spread out. You see how John narrates it in verse 19? He says that Jesus said this to show Peter by what kind of death Peter was 
to glorify God. In other words, Jesus is letting Peter know that his life will not end as he would otherwise have planned it. Peter will be martyred for Jesus. But however bitter that is for Peter, here's the overcoming sweetness in it. God is going to be glorified in your death, Peter. God is going to be glorified in it. In Peter's death, God will appear most excellent. God will be most highly exalted. God will be most radiant to the world. If you've ever thought about our dying, which I don't know that we do a whole lot of, but if you've ever thought about our dying, We've probably thought about all kinds of things, right? We've thought about our family. We've thought about their well-being. We've thought maybe about our plot of dirt. We've thought about our will, having that thing all, you know, written up and whatnot. We've thought about our legacy in the world. We've thought about our memorial service, what we want to be said and what we want to be sung and by whom and so on. But have we ever thought, have we ever thought we might not die as we thought? Or when we thought. Every one of you out there right now thinks you're probably going to make it to 95. Have we ever thought Christ knows our deaths? Both the how and the when. And have we thought it might actually be rather inglorious, at least in the eyes of the world, the eyes of other people? And have we thought in light of it, you know what, whether it's inglorious to people or whatever, it doesn't really matter so long as Jesus is magnified in it. Have we thought, I've actually been ordained and given to die one way or another as a Christian As Paul said in Philippians, to the honor of Christ. As John says here, to the glory of God. If you go to the book of Judges and you read about Samson, you're going to hear that Samson did more for the glory of God in dying, in his death, than he ever did in his living. Are we open to that? Are we preparing for such an opportunity as that? In preparing for tonight, and I do want to invite you all to come back out, in preparing for tonight's address on John Knox, I came across a guy named George Wishart. When it was all the rage in Scotland to burn preachers at the stake for preaching the grace of the gospel. And as he went, he said what I found really, really uh, Difficult, but formative. He's going to the stake to be burned at the stake for preaching the truth of the gospel. And as he goes, he sees the brothers and the sisters that he's ministered to over the last several months and perhaps years. And he's urging them, love the Word of God. He's about to be burnt to powder for the sake of the Word of God. And as he goes, he's saying, love the Word And suffer for it. Because your salvation is seen, evidenced in that. 
And how by his own willingness, the gospel he taught was only further confirmed to be the truth of God. And then he says this, quote, For this cause I was sent, that I should suffer this fire for Christ's sake. He's like 40 years old. That's like me. Okay. For this cause I was sent, purpose, that I should suffer fire for Christ's sake. He sees this torture as an ordained opportunity to make much of Jesus. I hardly think like that about my free time, much less my dying hour, and still less by fire. Beloved, if Jesus told you, this is how you're going to die, not as you would want, but as God has willed, and it will be, say, crucifixion. If he said that, and then followed it up with, come on, let's get going, follow me, would you do it? Is it not to the glory of God that Peter does it? That this is not a deterrent to someone that we know to be a denier? How is that? How is this not a deterrent to Peter? Two things quickly. Whether it's cancer, heart disease, car accident, martyrdom, or plain old age, the only way to embrace the temporary dissolution of your body and soul, the only way to die on mission is to hear and dwell on two things your whole life in those words, follow me. One, Jesus never asks you to carry the heavy end of the cross. You may be called to suffer a lot for Jesus. But because of the cross of Christ, you'll never be called on to suffer the hell that your sins deserve. Peter's cross and Jesus' cross are not the same cross. And neither is Jesus' cross and whatever He's called you to. Whatever He's ordained for you, you can suffer, however awful, knowing it is an impermanent pain on the way to eternal life. Which brings me to this. This call, follow me. Just think for a second here. Think about where we are in this gospel. This call, follow me, falls from the lips of a person who has died. but now lives. These words are falling from the lips of the risen Jesus, the Lord of life, the destroyer of death. So His very presence here with Peter is preaching to him to follow me in this world will not only lead you to crosses, but through crosses to life everlasting and to me. I myself am evidence of that reality. 
You can bear that cross, Peter, knowing you will rise. Follow me. Following Jesus and Christian restoration, following Jesus and Christian dying, now following Jesus and Christian living. I know it seems backwards, but that's how the text lays out. I actually found it a little bit comical amidst all the heavy. That as soon as Jesus says this, Peter turns around. <laughs> You're going to die this death for the glory of God. Follow me, Jesus turn, or Peter turns around. And he sees John. He sees John. And if he's trying to sort of divert the conversation from where he doesn't really want it to go, he says, okay, but what about that guy, Jesus? <laughs> what glories do you have for this disciple that you love so much? I mean, if this is planned for me, and you love me, what about him who's called the beloved disciple? It invites us further into this main idea of following the risen Jesus. You see, into verse 20, this is the disciple that leaned on Jesus at the Last Supper to identify the betrayer, and that we know it was neither John nor Peter tells us true disciples, true disciples devoted to Jesus can take the same path but look very differently in doing so. I'm not sure that Peter and John can be much different as people. And yet we frequently find them where? Side by side, more or less tightly attached to the hip of Jesus. And that's, the, that's the way it should be. It can create occasion to lose sight of Jesus, which is basically like the earth experiencing a solar eclipse, the loss of the sun. When that happens, what happens? The world goes dark. And we live there far too often as Christians in a savior eclipse, if you will. Jesus gets eclipsed all the time by family, by work, by school, by entertainment, long day, need to go home, sit on the couch. He gets eclipsed by suffering, by sorrow, by habit, religious or otherwise. Jesus gets eclipsed by sports, by money, by politics. That's where all my hope is. He gets eclipsed by busyness. And sometimes he gets eclipsed by people, even other disciples of Jesus. And at times, that can look very Christian. You're pouring into others, you're serving them, you're meeting their needs, you're discipling, you're doing so much good that you neglect the spiritual condition of your own soul. Dare I say you've lost sight of Christ in doing so many Christian things. And the thing is, you hardly know it until you wake up one morning in a strange state of spiritual dryness and downness needing attention immediately. But on the other hand, there is also what our flesh naturally breeds, and that's more of this. Jealousy, comparison, rivalry, or just sticking our nose where it doesn't belong, hyper-curiosity. Now, we're called 
to keep our eyes on godly examples, Philippians 3, Hebrews 13, keep your eyes on godly examples, imitate their faith, but always understanding that even the best of people are people at best. So that what we're really wanting to see is Christ in them. Christ in them. But there are times when, if we're being honest, truth be told, we'd rather just be like them. We would prefer their lot in life. We would prefer their endowment in Christ. We would prefer to have their gifts, prefer to have their abilities, prefer to have their talents, prefer to have their opportunities. And what happens is we begin to measure our lives not by an affectionate obedience to Jesus, but by this idol we've created of another person's life. We want to be them. And that is the measure of our lives. And the sad irony there is that our lives then will end up having very little weight at all. They'll measure extra small by the standard of Christ, as will always be the case where Christ is eclipsed in our lives. And so one, Paul Washer has made the point that those who have done the most for Jesus are not those necessarily who have more talents than you or more benefits than you, more advantages than you. It's just that they've seen more Jesus than you. It's not that they're so much greater than you are. It's that they've seen more of the greatness of Christ than you have. And so you see here in verse 22, Jesus is offering us all a remedy to that. He says to Peter, if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you, Peter? You follow me. Here you go. This is vital for Christian living. Jesus is alive and he's coming back. You see that in the verse and it's glorious. It focuses our lives on the main event. Christ again is coming, and we want to live with that in front of us. We want to live to that. But what you may not see as readily is that, you ready? Your living today is because Jesus has willed it so. Do you see that there? If it's my will that He remains until I come, Okay, that's big. All right? Your living today is because Jesus has willed it so. You and I, we do not hold the keys of life and death. Jesus does. You're here this morning, breathing, heart beating, alive at the merciful will of the risen Christ. And that's true for everybody. But the Christian is to realize that and apply it. So long as you live by the providence of Christ, you live as a Christian on purpose. And that purpose is supremely to live for Christ. You follow me. See? 
So yes, serve others, learn from others, imitate others. That's part of Christian living, part of Christian discipleship, but never to the degree that we'd rather follow them or we'd rather have their lot than follow Jesus and rejoice at all He has for us. Peter was martyred in a gruesome way, it seems. John was not martyred exactly. Peter's life was, we might say, cut short. John grew to be very old in exile on Patmos, which is probably why we have verse 23, right? John was so old, they were like, is this guy ever going to die and go to be with the Lord? Maybe that's what Jesus meant. And John says, oh, maybe you just need to spend your life listening more carefully to the words of Jesus. John died as well as Peter. And they both died well because they followed Jesus above all else. And so we come to the close of this gospel. Following Jesus and Christian ambition. Where to notice in these last verses, into verse 24 especially, not just the signature of John, but of some apostolic community, it looks like. You see that? He says, they say, we know, we know that his testimony, John's testimony to Jesus Christ, we know that it is true. Just pause there. That means everything that we've gone over in John for like, Two years, it's true. It's all true. And what I so love about the close is that whether it's John signing off or not, John's heart is seen. He won't, for a second, allow any appearance of a personal greatness that might get in the way of the majesty of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Even in old age, after all he's done for Jesus, he can't leave this gospel at this. We know that John's testimony is true. He can't leave it there. <laughs> so, he has to go back to Jesus and happily fade away. Let me tell you one more time about him and how great he is. All the glories, all the glories in this book that I have written, not me but John, are but purposeful selections from so many other things, verse 25, that Jesus did. Even now, as I think on it, if I'd have written down all the things that Jesus did, the world would not be space enough to contain it. There is not enough ink in existence to cover the wonders of the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. This Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world and especially of all those who believe. What we have in this Gospel, however, is enough to call for faith. 
It's enough to draw out faith. It's enough to establish, root, confirm faith. It's enough to sustain faith. It's enough to grow, develop, promote, live, and die by faith in Jesus Christ. Is that our ambition above all else? Whether what we know of Christ makes the pages of history or not, whether we become well-known, that's about us. But to see the world flooded, not enough space, to see it flooded with the essential truth and grace of Jesus, now that is about Him. It's no coincidence that John's Gospel has some of the highest views of Jesus. What a portrait John has given us of his Savior. What a portrait God has given us of His Son. And so perhaps our brother John here won't mind me taking our leave by the words of the other John. I like him a lot, John the Baptist. Okay? You remember back in John 3, his disciples are all concerned. Oh, John... Jesus is taking over. <laughs> everybody's, everybody's going to Him. That's not good. And John says, you're wrong. That is all my joy. He must increase. But I must decrease. What a humbling joy it's been. Lord, we thank You for it and pray. Be glorified in it. Cause us to know and follow You who came to live, to die, to rise, to reign for us and for our salvation. Amen. You may have us stand as I invite the musicians to come back up. We're going to be singing a song, All Glory Be to Christ. If you know the New Year's tune, I never know the title of it. Old or old? Old? Old Lang Syne or something like that? You know the tune to it? We'll give you the words. Sing loudly as Jesus deserves.